Welcome to Integrative Conversations, hosted by the Academy of Integrative Mental Health. The Academy expands knowledge to professionals in the mental health community and beyond using a conscious, experiential, and evidence-based format. Our mission is to deliver comprehensive health and wellness to all by empowering personal and professional growth and confidence. To learn more, visit us at www.academyimh.com. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello, I'm Juniper Owens, Director of the Academy of Integrative Mental Health, and your host for today's Integrative Conversation. I spoke with activist and biologist Dr. Monica Unsold, who is based out of Louisville, Kentucky. We spoke on the day of the grand jury announcement on the Breonna Taylor case, which ultimately the grand jury had chosen not to issue indictments on homicide charges against any of the three officers who fired their guns in the police raid that killed Taylor in March. One former officer, Brett Hankison, faces charges of wanton endangerment, accused of firing bullets that ended up in a neighbor's home. The Kentucky chapter of the National Association of Social Workers, NASW, issued a statement that day, quote, the grand jury's decisions are devastating, but NASW Kentucky is emboldened and will continue to champion advocacy and justice in Breonna Taylor's name for all black, indigenous, and people of color. The world mourns with Kentucky the tragic loss of Brianna's life and the unending racial trauma and inequity that has plagued our state for centuries. Some deny and disparage the pain in our words and take actions to silence our right to speak. NASW Kentucky is disappointed in those elected officials who have used social media to spread divisive rhetoric as we must come together to address systemic racism in our society, including in our criminal justice system. I would like to give a moment of silence now to honor the life of Breonna Taylor and the black community, Kentuckians, and the global community who are grieving, angry, and fighting for justice and equality. In this conversation, Monica discusses black mental health, what it's like living as a black woman in Kentucky today, and what peace means for black individuals living in a world of racialized violence and generational trauma, resulting in PTSD, post-traumatic slavery disorder. She very eloquently and vulnerably shares some of her experiences with the mental health system and why it's important to talk about and understand black mental health needs. Here is a clip from Trevor Noah, host of The Daily Show, from a segment on Black mental health. And I think this is a great intro and segue into our conversation with Monica. There are few groups who could stand to benefit from therapy more than Black people. I mean, think about all the things Black people have been through. Slavery, segregation, winter, all equally traumatic experiences. But unfortunately, Even as therapy has become more mainstream, the black community has had a tough time getting the help that they need. 
It's hard enough to get mental health treatment in the U.S., but studies show that racial and ethnic minorities are significantly less likely to receive mental health treatment than whites. Black and Hispanic children are less likely to get mental health care than white kids. And studies show that irritability in the average white teenager is often labeled as depression. That same behavior is more likely to be seen as disruptive in black or Latino children. And doctors say that can lead to feelings of hopelessness at a very young age. Yes, one of the reasons many black people don't get the proper treatment is misdiagnosis. What is seen as depression in white people can be seen as disruptive behavior in black people. And this shouldn't be surprising, right? This kind of thing happens in medicine all the time, mixed diagnosis. It's like when a black person has a seizure, it's a medical emergency. But when a white person does it, it's called dancing. (laughs) But it turns out, it turns out, Even when black people are properly diagnosed with mental health issues, it can still be a challenge to find a therapist who's equipped to handle their needs. Making the crisis worse, not enough African-American therapists. Today, only 4% of psychologists are black. Kevin Durden says admitting he needed help was actually easier than finding it. He saw three different therapists, but felt that none of them understood the stress and emotions unique to black men. When Taraji P. Henson's own son, Marcel, was struggling, she found it nearly impossible to find him one. Trying to find a culturally competent therapist was like looking for a purple unicorn with a gold horn. Do they understand the cultural context from which I'm coming from? Do they understand the culture that I live in? That's right. It's extremely difficult for black people to find a black therapist. And it's been like this for a very, very long time. I mean, that's why Martin Luther King Jr. was always describing his dreams to huge crowds. You know, it was just like, I had another dream (laughs) that I'm being chased by bears in my underwear. Does anyone here know what that means? (laughs) Now, now you may think, you may think that a therapist's race shouldn't matter at all. And that's true. But if you think about it, it does make sense. For many white therapists, no matter how good they are, it can be hard to understand the particular experiences of a black person. You know, just sitting there in a session, even if they're trying, it could be like, so you say people are following you around the store and you're invisible, but only to taxi drivers? Hmm, (laughs) paranoid delusions. (laughs) So when it comes to mental health, there's a very real struggle for black people to access healthcare, get diagnosed correctly, and find a therapist who can relate to them. And now our conversation with Monica Unseld. Monica Unseld, PhD and MPH, received her doctorate in biology in 2008 from the University of Louisville and received her master's in public health from Benedictine University in 2018. For over a decade, she's worked with frontline communities facing environmental racism and environmental injustices. She currently works for the Greater Louisville Project in Louisville, Kentucky. All right, Monica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I know that you do a lot of work and advocacy and volunteer work, so uh, it really means a lot that you've carved out time and are taking this um, space to share your experience and knowledge and wisdom. Thank you. And I know that we had previously talked, and I kind of asked you, to think about what you would want mental health professionals to know about the Black experience. And you've been spending some time sitting with those questions, and uh, we're going to discuss that today. But first and foremost, how are you feeling? Um, I'm hurting. 
Um, I'm physically sore. I'm emotionally raw. I have my Black Lives Matter shirt on today in defiance. I'm exhausted. I've been, I have cried this morning, hmm. um, but I'm also angry. And what really hit me this morning was that yesterday, another generation of black kids learned that their lives do not matter, that someone can murder them in their sleep and there will be no consequences. And so I'm worried that there's just one more generation that has to go through this. And it hurts when I think my grandparents did not want me to have to deal with this. My ancestors did not want me to deal with this. My parents who grew up under Jim Crow did not want me to deal with this. And yet here we are fighting these same battles. So I'm torn between just exhaustion, but I'm also like, I'm ready to overthrow the system, like <laughs> get to work, um, hold people accountable and, and make a better community for mm -hmm. once. Yeah. So yeah, I'm hearing exhaustion, but also somehow in the depths, there's this motivation and energy for change that uh, you're able to draw on maybe some, um, how would you describe that strength? Is that the right I word? Feel, oh, sorry. I feel like we don't have a choice except to push for change because this is, we're going to die. Um, so we don't have the luxury of not fighting. And I'm not sure if, if many mental health providers understand that, um, that for us, it's not an option. It's survival. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for, for describing it that way. Cause you're right. It's, uh, it seems like you can, you can't take a break is what I'm hearing. There's no yeah. breaks. Like I'm going to pause for a minute and, you know, forget about all this and then come back, which is a privilege of being white that, that that's not the, the experience. And so in, in that kind, what is it like to be a black woman today? Um, it's scary. There's a lot of weight on us because we're either the angry black woman or the, the people we're the, the work we got, we're the ones who just get done and have to get the work done because other people won't do it because we have that strong black woman stereotype. So we can't be vulnerable. We can't be sad. We can't be tired. But then if we have, if we show emotions, just if we become human, then we're emotional or we're too aggressive or, or we're somehow we're too strong. We, there's no room for us to experience to have the full human experience. Hmm. And, and can you describe more of what that's like in your day to day, maybe even just in work or with friends? Well, I mean, in work, it's difficult. Like if I send an email to someone who's white and I'm just sharing my knowledge and expertise, very often they get defensive. You know, or if I have a critique, they won't listen to me. They have to hear it again from a white voice. And then they will accept it. So, I mean, I have three degrees and somehow that's still not enough to convince people that I know what I'm talking about. And yesterday while we were waiting for the announcement and the city had ground to a halt, I had someone email me to get some paperwork done. And I said, please give me some grace. I'm working, you know, I, I'm a part of this advocacy movement, but to this person, it was just another work day. And I thought this is absolutely I, I'm not allowed to be human at all. Like, the fact that they don't realize the weight of what's happening in the city. And they're like, well, can you just email it to me as soon as possible? And I'm like, okay. But yeah. what can you do? Because uh, you'll, you'll be the uncooperative black woman. 
if I don't send in the forms. Yeah. And I'm hearing that there doesn't seem to be a lot of room to express and be. No. Because there's always consequences. If we show, if we cry, if we get angry, if we get nervous, there are consequences. And it feels like, well, I doesn't feel like it is the fact that black people, it seems as if we have to ask permission to grieve. We can't grieve people because they had a checkered past or they had flaws. And it's always up for discussion in the white community as to whether or not we have the right to mourn. They don't look at the violence that is racism and see that violence. They just see violence and protest. And it's getting old. It's really getting old. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it also carries uh, an emotional weight. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious um, of with that weight and um, almost the way that you describe it sounds like um, like a stalemate or like a frozen, like no matter what you do, there's some type of response or reaction that you're looking out for, which is almost the definition of trauma, right? Of trauma responses. And, um, and yet there is that enormous physical and emotional weight and and effect. So my sense is, is that mental health could be mental health quote treatment could be a, a, a resource and what I'm learning and experiencing, what we've discussed, that it's, it's not equipped as, as it's operated right now. And so I'm curious if we move on to kind of discussing a little bit about that system. And we know that right now it is operated under medical model and it tends to be problem-focused approach. And in your, from your experience and in your um, professional wisdom, how does focus on fixing what's wrong affect people of color, specifically, specifically black community? Well, when you're, in, when you're black, you grow up knowing that you're wrong. You're the wrong color. You, you know, you're, you're, everything about you is wrong. We're, we're outside of the norm. So when we just get labeled with diagnoses, it just adds to that weight that there's something wrong with us. And it, 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 it's understandable that we don't want to deal with that. We don't need another label for us and some of the violence that can occur with mental health providers is rolling their eyes telling us we're lying this is my personal pet peeve when they say put an alarm on your clock for 10 minutes and just sit still and be mindful no (laughs) that's not going to work there's too much going on in my mind there's too much pain there's too much anger i need someone that's going to help me survive this moment So instead of telling me what's wrong, help me find peace. Even if it's not in your books, help me find peace to get through this moment, through the next hour, through this day. And I think that's just a different approach. It's it's just accepting. Do you need to walk around outside barefoot? Do you need to light a candle? Do you need to pray? Do you need to contact your ancestors? Do you need to dance? Do you need a place to just where it's safe to cry or where it's safe to scream. Those sorts of things, instead of just the traditional talk therapy um, and things that are taught in school, we need more options for us. And we need more acceptance. We need a safe place where we can trust you to be honest, to say, this is how 
this is how much pain we're carrying because right now we're not sure we can trust you because you hurt us. You add to our trauma. Mm-hmm. Or you won't even I, you won't even admit that it is trauma. It's individual. Well, are you sleeping well? What is your sleep? What are your sleep habits? What are your eating habits? I'm like, no. <laughs> 400 plus years of oppression and DNA change from all of that racism. That's what the problem is. Hmm. And I'm hearing that we have a focus and the focus tends to be because of trying to get the services covered is a diagnosis. Hmm. And it's a, it's a system with a feedback loop that in order for insurance to cover and to get coverage, you have to have a diagnosis. But diagnosis inherently says there's something wrong with you, as you mentioned. And so it's like, why do you have to be diagnosed with depression when you are having a normal response to trauma and systemic racism and culture of violence um, perpetrated toward you? Yet you have to take medication and be labeled depressed. And like you said, what we the the training gives coping skills for depression symptoms, and that's not working. No, that's what I'm hearing. And I'm working with a group now where we're trying to pull together mental health resources to talk with you about this in response to the decision and the announcement yesterday. And we're finding some people are hopping right in, and then we're finding some groups are not safe. So I had um, unfortunate interaction with a local support group this morning. Someone posted in their support group that they were worried about people living downtown because of the protesters were not being peaceful. And several people were like, that can go the wrong way. Like you can say that without mentioning protesters. I I said, you know, look, we're looking for resources, but if this is going to happen, you all need to address this because we cannot recommend this for the black community. Well, I was told that I was being bossy and that instead of telling them to address it, I should have asked them to address it. And they were saying, well, you you need to understand that we're human too. And I said, this isn't about you. And I kept saying, it's not about you. And then finally, I just said, we cannot reach out to you to be a part of our resources that we send out into the community because they were so centered on protecting themselves and on their white feelings and on the fact that I told them to address it instead of asking them that it just blew up into something bigger. And I was like, okay, forget it. But that to me, that was violence towards me, right? Because I'm having to do it. I'm like, really? I'm just telling you to deal with this so that if we send people here, they will not be hurt. And then I get attacked. I'm the bad person. I'm the mean black woman. And it's just, it's frustrating. It's, I, I know I'm, I, there's just no words for how much that hurts. Yeah. You're, it's a felt experience in your body. Yeah. And um, it's when you, when you describe the safe space, are, do you have an idea of elements that are necessary for a safe space for black folks? We have to be allowed to get angry without judgment, without comment, without white people getting defensive, without the not all whites, without white people presenting their resume of how 
how, what good allies they are and how many marches they've been to and how their parents marched. We just need a, a place where we can cry, where we can get angry, where we can ask questions, where we can be bewildered. And it would be nice if we could just have a place to nap, a place to rest. I, I, I follow the nap ministry online. And, you know, they do have these events where people can just come and take a nap during the day. But a place where Blacks could be fully human, because normally we don't get to be human. We have to be in a box. If we are too human, we will pay the consequences for it. Mm. Uh, Yeah, a lot. There was a lot to kind of unpack with that as far as safe space. But really, it doesn't sound it sounds quite simple. It's shut up or like remove yourself or your ideas or your needs for a moment and allow space, which you would think, or as a mental health professional, that is essentially the ideas we're holding space for healing or uh, creating this. And um, it, it's not rocket science. You just step on back and move back and allow what needs to, space to happen, what needs to happen. But I'm hearing that that's few and far in between, at least in your experience. Um, unfortunately, I'm, I, won't, I can't speak for every experience. I am seeing a, a shift and that more people are realizing that the, the inherent white supremacy in mental health needs to be addressed and the selfishness of some mental health providers who do center it around their comfort, that that needs to be addressed. I am surprised that people are reaching out to me about this group, you know, what we're trying to do now to respond to yesterday's announcement. People are saying, you know, I know I'm white, but I do trauma response and <laughs> here's my number, put it on Facebook. So that is, that is refreshing. Um, but there are some groups, some people that just will not get it and we will just move on without them. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause there's no time to, no. and energy to have to educate and train every single group. We, you need group, we need groups that are ready to go now and yes. meet the needs of the community. And I was at a training, um, uh, actually an eco-psychology conference. And there was a speaker who was talking about the race, like the racial elements of diagnosis in general. And you had said something like free to be human. And this particular speaker was talking about the, the diagnosis of ADHD. He said, actually, that's, indi- that's a person being indigenous, like hmm. an indigenous person does does sometimes moves their body when they need to move their body and sometimes speaks out in song and music and sound when it flows through their bodies. And in school, that is impulsive and ADHD labeling. And um, that really hasn't sunken into the core fabric of the DSM, which I personally have uh, quit using the diagnostic statistic manual. I don't even know. Um, and there's also a lot of prominent mental health organizations that have actually dropped like the national um, uh, NAMI, I think has dropped out of that because they're not addressing those cultural and um, racial bias in diagnoses. Would you say that fits with, Okay, quick correction. I said NAMI, but I meant to say NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, who ceased all funding to the DSM. The NIMH director, Thomas Ensel, said that it was time to reorient away from the DSM's symptom-based categories. Instead, the Institute is developing a new framework called Research Domain Criteria, 
that replaces the DSM diagnosis with broader research categories that incorporate behavioral and neuroscience mm-hmm. evidence. All right, back to the show. Yes, yes I, knowledge. I completely agree because black kids are always troublemakers, no matter what. And you, people don't realize they're, they're coming to that class dealing with the everyday trauma of being black. And also, I think a lot of white people feel that since black people have been here for over 400 years, that we have assimilated into white culture and we have not. Our cultures are still separate and it's frustrating that people of color have to learn white culture, but white people never learn black culture. So in discussions, like white culture is so individualized, whereas black culture is not. So when you get into discussions with white people and they don't understand why within the black community, we may look at someone who might not stick up for black issues and why we may chastise them, they don't understand why we just don't let that person be an individual. But in our culture, we stick together and we take care of each other. We don't pursue individual goals if it means hurting the community. And I don't think why people understand how different our cultures are. And even within the black community, our parents have to prepare us for a world that wants to kill us. So we're brought up, you know, we may have very strict parents who, or we may have parents who have been beaten down by the system who may not know how to do, you know, what the, what the books say is healthy parenting, but what is, you know, what is healthy, right? Um, it's just about being in peace in the moment. That to me is what healthy is. It's finding your peace and staying there. But I wish there was more understanding of the different cultures that are here in America so that we can truly accept what it means to heal, what it means to be at peace, even if it is an indigenous way, because those ways survived for thousands of years and they're okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And almost um, what I'm necessary for survival at this point, these collective um, approaches to healing as a community might look different than taking a pill and doing 10 minutes of meditation or mindfulness or what have you. Yes. And kind of on that same subject, um, what does, so I think we're kind of on a subject of decolonizing. So for you, what does decolonizing mental health look like? To me, it looks like individualized care. So if someone comes in and says, I feel better walking through the forest, you won't tell them no. Instead, get this app. Because that's what I you know, tell all my patients to do. Or if someone needs to burn sage, that it's okay to support that. Decolonize means talking about the systems that oppress us and letting us know that it's okay to to overthrow them. It's okay to be angry and realizing that society has been built by white people to make white people comfortable and to give them an unfair advantage. And to decolonize means to say, Yes, as a white person, I am privileged. As a white person, the system is rigged. And I believe your your experience, everyone is an expert in their own experience. I believe you. I support you. You are safe here. If you need to lash out at me just to get it out of your system, I will not judge you. But just 
do a Google search, you know, <laughs> look at what other cultures are doing. It, it amazes me that so many white people, I always say like the Supreme race really can act very helpless. A lot of the time, like, why are you so helpless? Why do we need to teach you how to treat us like human beings? When, and why do we have to feed you books and recommendations when you can look it up online or you can come talk to us and say, what helps you? Instead of that, this top down, I did some research on black people. So here's an intervention that I think will help you when you really could just come and talk to us and say, what do you need? And then believe us when we answer. Hmm. Yeah. And, and you had said something that you mentioned was listening and being open. And I think there's a danger from my experience, uh, at least in not to, not to throw social work under the bus, it's just my educational experience is there's a cultural competency, um, ethic value and, um, component of social work, the Council of Social Work Education. However, sometimes I, I, I was curious about the danger of presenting cultural competency as um, could be continuing stereotypes, labels, or misunderstanding of a community because who's writing those cultural competencies? Like, so for example, is something is like understanding machismo in the Latin, the Latin community. And it's like, it just almost seems to be perpetuating or creating these. Well, now I know this mm-hmm. community because I read it in an article. Um, and that doesn't seem to be at all uh, realistic as far I as com- cultural competency. I completely agree with what you're saying. I'm, I'm part of a cohort and workshop called Reclaiming STEM. And we were talking about how all of these standards and a professionalism, a cultural competency of what is acceptable behavior, what is, you know, and what does intelligence look like? It was all written by white supremacists and the patriarchy. No one ever said, asked anyone of color, what does it mean to be intelligent? So in the sciences, you're supposed to have a very monotone voice when you present, and that's a sign of intelligence. But in communities of color, we don't speak in a monotone voice. To us, that's boring. But I've been called out for it. They said, cause I, cause I, they say I'm too unfamiliar. I'm too country, you know, like I'm too folksy when I speak, but it's just because I'm not monotone. And if you're developing cultural competencies based on white supremacy, you're comparing everything to white supremacy and patriarchy, then everything in that book needs to be reexamined. You need to go in and just say, it's not machismo. It's just who they are. It doesn't need that label. And then maybe just say this, just allow it to be. And that's okay. Yeah. And I'm curious as you're speaking of uh, talking about white supremacy and the patriarchy and mental health, uh, you're in the, you, you, you have a background in academia and the science. And I'm curious how racism showed up. Well, how many ways racism showed up in that system and if you have any thoughts to share on that. Oh, as a faculty member, they loved to put me on brochures. They put me in commercials because I was the black biologist. But in faculty meetings, I was not a team player because I would say things they didn't agree with. But if a white colleague said the same thing, they were praised for it. 
In terms of mental health, black students who were not in any of my classes, they came to me when their you know, brother committed suicide, when they had suicidal thoughts. They, they had to search me out because I, I understand they, they didn't trust who was on campus, the mental health professional, so they had to seek me out. And so I'm not trained in mental health, but I had to, I have things in my office, like I collected brochures and, and phone numbers and magnets to give these students because they, did, they had nowhere else to go or they believed they had nowhere else to go. So, and that just shows you that academia is not a safe space. It, it's not. And some of these institutions just need to not exist in order for there to be true equity. Hmm. Yeah. So can you, can you describe a little bit more um, on that specifically? Because I'm curious if you can, this is a question that's been um, circulating and not only my mind, but in some conversations I've been having with colleagues of, can you fix a rigged system? So let's speak mental health because this is this is our world, is our listeners' world. So um, the the it's your it's Eurocentric, you know the father the father of psychology is Freud. Uh, so like let's just let that sink in for a minute. But the idea is, can you go within a rigged system and fix it, or do you need to burn burn that system down and start afresh? And it's I'm curious because that's not a conversation that's happening on a, um, a larger scale. Um, maybe it's, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? I personally think it's a mixture of both. You need people on the inside to help dismantle it from the inside and who will be ready to start rebuilding with what would make it better. And then you also need pressure from the outside to burn it down. So it's a partnership. So those who are professionals are saying, okay, well, we're just going to start accepting more practices to bring people peace. Those on the outside call out the system, put them on blast. As we, I know the younger kids say something different now. <laughs> put them on blast is what we would say and embarrass them and hold them accountable. But I, I think it takes both. Yeah. Uh, and, and specifically within the mental health system, um, because it's been taken over and medicalized by insurance companies, sometimes it can feel, especially for advocates and, um, that it can feel like you're fighting, you know, fighting a giant that can't be beat because mm-hmm. of money or power or whatever else. So I like the idea that you don't give up. You, you go at it in all ways. Yes. And the thing is, we've got to work for justice and not charity because we're not putting Band-Aids on anything anymore. So if we need to create a brand new society where insurance companies do not have that much power, then we need to get started on that. I do think it's time for practitioners in mental health to start working on policy and become more politically active. We've seen this move within the science community. When I was in grad school, we were taught to be completely objective and do not take a stand. And it was just starting to see a shift in scientists starting to speak up. And now we have the March for Science. We're out there in the streets. We've got the Extinction Rebellion. We're doing all sorts of things. But eventually, you've got to start speaking up and saying no more. 
And so I would love to see clinicians speak out on the injustices that they see. They have a privilege. Your degrees give you privilege, and we need to use that to create a better society. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking of <laughs> environmental justice, I know that you do a lot of work in the environmental justice um, world, and I'm curious of your thoughts of the links toward the environmental injustice and um, mental health, specifically in the black community. It's tough. There are days I don't want to check my email because it's just another story of another community that's being killed. And when you know that this is not by accident, it was planned and executed, that these communities were up for sacrifice, it wears you down. And unfortunately, what we see in these communities is some people are so tired, they're sick, they work full time, and they're having to fight this issue and they feel hopeless. So sometimes they feel like they can't advocate for themselves anymore because it's not worth it. Or they're always sick, they're in the hospital all the time. And people say, well, why don't you just move? Well, one, you have to sell your house and who's gonna wanna buy a house? next to a factory that's polluting. So it's hard to move. And two, you're going to break up these communities. There is mental and emotional well-being in a sense of community. And if you say, well, everybody just leave, you're leaving your neighbors, you're leaving your community culture around. And that's a choice that no one should have to make. And there is just the injustice of waking up every morning smelling bad air. That wears you down. And no matter how many times you call to report the odors coming out in Rubbertown, they're going to still release them. And the city's going to do nothing about it. That's frustrating. That wears you down. And people say, well, well why, do, you know, why should we even fight? So part of the, the plan is to empower people to say, you are worthy of something better. Because oppressed communities have been taught, we've been raised that we are not worthy, that we don't matter. And we have to build up our own sense of self-worth so that we can start questioning and saying, the air shouldn't smell like this. Yeah, or the water that um, is coming out of the tap shouldn't be killing our children. Yes. And I'm curious of what, (laughs) two things. One, it's interesting because, yeah, it's this, uh, I don't know, white supremacy and, and a little bit of a little capitalism mixed in there, but why doesn't the factory move? Why should the community move? Why shouldn't it's like, it's just assumed that they will just stay and do their thing. But um, so I always find that interesting. So like you said, it, then it's like, okay, well then look who, what is the community placing value on mm-hmm. Not the members of the community, but the money or the influence that that factory provides. And yeah, that's not right. And here in Louisville, what drives me absolutely angry and infuriates me is you hear the line from the mayor and Metro Council, both parties, that the West End needs more policing because of higher crime rates. And I had meetings with the mayor. I've had meetings with members of Metro Council. And I said, if you invest in the West End, the crime rate will go down. But what do they do? They continue to not invest in the West End and then look at the crime mates. Then they have a press conference saying, this is why we need more police in the West End. 
instead of checking in with the mental health and making some more green space, any simple things that can uplift the West End, they refuse to do because they want to choose to criminalize Black people. And they love to do it at their press conferences, and I absolutely hate it. Yeah, and rightly so. And also that furthers the trauma and the um, messages that are continuously from all areas being um, absorbed is you don't matter. Um, there's so, not only is there something wrong with you, but you're a criminal. Mm-hmm. And so we have this, gen- and this is multi-generational, right? Yes. And so we have people that are, and, and I tried to do some research before this, and I know you're the data person, so maybe you might even have access to this, but I was trying to find out as far as mental health providers, what percentage of providers are uh, identify or are white, and I'm, my sense is, is that's going to be a very large percent because we just did another podcast with Erica Reeve, who is um, a local therapist, and she was discussing the shortage of black providers and uh, providers of color in general, but specifically black providers. And so, so you have people that, and in social work, we work with vulnerable communities, right? And so you have, I'm going to guess 80% white providers, maybe more. I don't know where to find that data. Actually, we are looking for that data. Okay. We, don't have, we have not found anyone who has collected it yet. So what we may do is put out a statement saying we need to start collecting it. But there are several of us looking for it, and we put out emails to see, like, we need to know who who identifies as a black person or who identifies as a person of color, and then how do we create a pipeline so that we can create more. But when you were talking about your school, that – made me think about how in the sciences we have weed out courses. So I'm wondering if that happens in social work where like the, the goal of that class is to intentionally make people drop out of the major, which is cruel. And it's all that colonized white supremacist patriarchy system. So I wonder if that's one reason we are not having more black practitioners in mental health because somewhere in their education, the school said, this is where we, we weed them out. That's a great point. And I know social work tends to be more you know, diverse as far as how many providers, but in mental health in general. So there's uh, people coming in for marriage and family therapy. There's people coming in counseling. There's lots of different um, systems and they aren't even from what I'm hearing. And this is why we, we are working on the Academy is to provide education that is necessary and that wasn't, um, provided for formal education, they didn't even learn um, about how environment, environmental factors influence someone's mental health. I mean, as a social worker, I feel that that's covered. They don't even get that. It's all psychology. So I think you're right in that weeding out. Why would somebody want to, uh, or I can see how hard that would be to sit through mm-hmm. these courses and have your experience be completely invalidated. Because there was the Wells Fargo guy, you said he couldn't find black talent. And then there was that tweet going around saying, the talent is there. You just don't have a safe space for them to exist within your organization. Because I mean, we're qualified just like anyone else. There's a reason we're not there and it's because it's not safe for us to be there. Yeah, that really sounds like kind of a theme emerging um, 
in this conversation at least about the the lack of safe space. So not only kind of have we discussed the experience, your experience, but also the lack of safe spaces to heal or just be, to rest, mm-hmm. to express. And I'd like to say that I think mental health community could should and could play a, a large role in that. It's kind of what we signed up for. In this yes. session, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, kind of, is there anything that's coming and emerging um, now uh, as far as um, maybe some calls to action or um, anything like that? We're looking at healing circles. You know, even just the names, like instead of calling it therapy, you know, because that's the stigma and then that makes it think traditional white culture therapy, healing circles, places uh, places to rest, places to find peace, places to connect with our ancestors, places to, to be indigenous, places to be the culture that we grew up in and not the culture that we have to work in or the culture we have to go to school in but a place for you, for white people to come and see our culture and accept it and learn and to appreciate it and to see it as a powerful healing tool, not only for us, but for the entire community. Because I, part of me wonders how many different European cultures and ways of thinking did we lose because white people had to unite under being white? And one, you know, because there are indigenous white cultures, right? Like the Arctic and, you know, Greenland, Sweden. How many cultures and ideas and practices and traditions were lost so that people could be white? So I think if we all just decolonize, white people need to decolonize too. There's internal colonization. If everyone just gets back into in touch with being human and being a part of the earth, and being a part of the universe and being part of something bigger and being part of a community and not the rat race, the grind culture, I think we would see a lot of healing in society and we'd have more understanding and we'd all be able to look at these oppressive systems and say, whoa, not only does that hurt Black people, that hurts the entire community because if Black people are hurting, I'm hurting too. Because we are humans, we are together, we are connected. That's what I'm seeing. And I hope that that continues to grow. Yeah. And one would think that uh, experiencing a global pandemic could really um, create a space of understanding and awareness of just how connected people really are. And I would veer to say as an ecotherapist or someone in eco-psychology is how interconnected and interwoven we are to every element on earth. However, just as humans, we're really seeing, I I was hoping that we would start to see, oh, wow, what one person does affects somebody else and even in another country. But uh, it doesn't seem to be absorbing quite that way, unfortunately. It's that, I think it's that internalized colonization and internalized white supremacy is that this, that individual, somebody has to win. It's always a battle as opposed to a collaborative. And I think that's where we need to shift. And I think it would be great for the mental health community to see their patients as partners, you know, partners in healing, partners in healing, 
yourself, but partners in healing the community. And I think there's a powerful role for mental health professionals to step up and heal the community. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that part of that is decentralizing um, because there's a power differential in a therapeutic relationship or in a um, social service relationship, kind of decentralizing that power and also like looking at ways of how that hierarchy is, is coming into play because that you're I think there is a shift at least in our world of trying to um, uh, highlight or emphasize this integrative approach because the idea is is that it's not medical model. We're looking outside of Western approaches because it's just not working. Mm-hmm. I mean, the numbers of people being diagnosed with anxiety and depression, I mean, it's just not working. If you just look outside your window, you can tell that. And so uh, that we have to move beyond this approach because, well, maybe it is working to keep white people in power. Um, I always was thinking that I'm being, I'm training people. This was like the moment where I decided I'm not doing it the same way anymore. I'm training people to be successful in a capitalist white supremacist society. Mm-hmm. That's what I felt like I was doing in my practice um, by medicating anything that's wrong or different and by training, Oh, work, work isn't happening this way. Well, here's some coping techniques so you can get through your 18 hour shift at a factory and not, you know, and, and does that make sense? Yes. And that's not healing. That's, no. that's popping up a system. And I, I'm really glad that you shared that um, it, it's, it's not working and that it's not reaching people, I guess. And I'm glad you said what you said because in the reclaiming STEM discussions, we talk about how, how the way we define knowledge is through colonizers and white supremacists. You know, we have the scientific method. There are plenty of ways to know the world without the scientific method. And we saw in the ancient world, they built the pyramids without it. They did all sorts of things without the scientific method and peer review and p-values and stats. And we need to look at how we define knowledge and how we define what information is valuable because we'd have to tear down that system too and say, it's not working. Right, because all we have how many decades of scientific research, and the climate's still not okay. We're still polluting. People are still getting sick. It's not working. And instead of labeling it alternative, it very well may be traditional. It may have been around for thousands of years, but we put a label on it as if it's somehow outside the norm, and that also signals to people of color that we're outside of the norm. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that because it's almost that it's, it's almost, I feel that I almost have to phrase it like that to be considered professional or not get my license taken away. Um, Like uh, like balancing the evidence-based approach with um, you know, we, we have to use the term ancient wisdom, but like you said, is it really ancient or is it happening right now? And is it, is the knowledge there right now? Yeah. But I've seen, yeah. Oh, sorry. I've seen some tweets where they were saying, you know, how Western society, white supremacists define progress. And they were saying like, okay, so indigenous people have been on this land for thousands of years. Colonizers came and within a 
few centuries have pretty much destroyed everything, but they call it progress. And I was like, nope, there you go. Look how we define, you know, we don't see. So when I look outside and people are like a new tall building and I see all of these roads, it hurts me to think that our beautiful planet has this much granite and concrete and everything. It absolutely hurts me. And I'm thinking we made it so far without this. This is not progress. And if we can, and that is not healing. So when people need like biophilia, we need to connect with nature. It's in our, it's who we are as a species, but we're destroying that. So we can't even reserve that for ourselves as a space to heal. Yeah. That's yet another safe space that's, um, taken away or, um, removed i don't know the right word to say for that yeah Yeah, it was just it was taken away it was destroyed so that somebody could make money yeah yeah and retain power yeah yeah well i'm curious if i know we've been kind of chatting for a little while and we've covered a lot of areas and topics and i'm sure there's so many more uh, areas that we could dive into but um maybe just giving a moment to kind of digest or process the conversation. And if there's anything else that's in your heart or left to say, or that you would like to leave us with today. And if it feels complete, then it's complete. I think what's on my heart really today is just let us be human. You guys know that about the limbic system, you know, about hormones let us have that experience without judgment, without forcing us to ask permission. If we need to break down, let us break down. And to listen and just believe us, believe our experiences and how we see the world. And please stop filtering our experiences through what you learned in class. That, that's what I hope. Let us have peace. That's, that's my hope. Right now, we just need inner peace. We need peace. And may I ask how you're finding peace uh, today? Or is that even achievable or realistic for you? It's tough today. I'm getting through moment by moment. Um, I'm taking time to breathe. I'm saying my emotions out loud to just say, I'm angry. I'm scared. I'm overwhelmed. And I'm just trying to not bottle it up. But I would be lying if I said I wasn't worried that I'm going to get consumed with emotion. Because sometimes you feel like there's so much information, so much emotion that it's just going to overtake you. And I don't know if I will be okay. I am learning that it's okay to cry. And that I will survive crying. Like I will cry and the cry will finish. And I will be able to continue on with my day. So for me, it's just moment to moment. If I have to stop what I'm doing and do some kickboxing, I'm giving myself allowances to do that. Well, thank you so much for taking time today again. and. 
um, knowing that, yeah, yesterday uh, was intense in our city and that you were able to show up uh, for, for this conversation. It's much appreciated. And um, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We really want to hear from you. Please visit our website, www.academyimh.com. We'd love to hear any feedback you have about the podcast and also what is important to you as a clinician right now. How can we be a resource for you? Please send us a message. Again, www.academyimh.com.